So Jesus asked that you would, uh, we look to you to guide us and through your word and pray that you would help us understand this and how it applies to our life. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, hello, 945. Good to see all of you here. In his book, Storyline, Donald Miller writes about a friend who always talked about being a musician, wanted to be a musician. The key phrase, though, would be always talked about. He actually never did anything about it. So Donald Miller got sick of hearing him talk about it. So one day, Donald Miller booked a venue and got a picture of his friend and made posters advertising a concert with him and put the posters all over town. So his friend had a choice, either no show, which would be embarrassing because his picture was everywhere, or go to the gig. And that's what he, that's what he did. Miller had to force him to, into a bigger life that he actually wanted. Do you ever have to be forced into doing something that is good for you? I know I do. Uh, you know, Jesus offers us so much. You know, marriages that are fulfilling adventure and his rescue mission, a closer connection to God, and on and on and on. And we want those things. We can see those things would be good, but often something kind of holds us back. So sometimes what we need is something to kickstart the story that God wants to write with our lives. In literature, it's what's known as an inciting incident. So for instance, most movies start with the main character in some kind of complacent in some kind of a way, but then there's an inciting incident. Their kid gets kidnapped, or they fall in love, or aliens invade the planet, and, and that spurs them forward toward adventure and a more exciting life in the rest of the movie. Except, as I said last week, if it's a French film and then everyone just dies <laughs> after being depressed for a long time. So let me ask you this question. Is there something you know that you need to do to, and it's good for you, to be the person God created you to be, to have a bigger life. Is there something you know you need to do? And you know you might even enjoy it after it's done. You know, maybe it's to stop settling for the status quo in your marriage, or maybe it's to invest in uh, your spiritual life so you can connect with Jesus in a deeper way. Maybe it's that bad habit, you call it that, others call it an addiction, you know, that you still need to work on. And you know if you did something about it it, it, it would be good. You might even enjoy it when it was all said and done. But do you ever procrastinate? Ever? You know, sometimes my wife will ask me to do some chore around the house, and occasionally, man, she'll just keep asking and asking, which, which kind of bothers me. And because, you know, I said I would do it, and just because it's been six months doesn't mean I've forgotten. It's the principle of entropy. You know, roughly speaking, things wind down unless energy is added to them. You know, like kids during summer vacation, right? By the time you get to August, they're laying around the house saying things like, I'm bored. Right? Like, has that ever happened to any of you? Like, I see some of you not. I mean, my kids are always praying and reading the Bible, but <laughs> all summer long, that's just what they do. It's just kind of this holy, how, you wouldn't understand it. It's a pastor thing. We, we get complacent and opt for the path of least resistance, gradually let our dreams die and end in not such a great place, but we can kind of tolerate it. We let tensions linger in relationships rather than resolving them. We stay too long in jobs we don't like rather than looking for one that would be better. We settle for having okay character rather than letting Jesus really transform us. We let financial problems go on and on without doing what it takes to fix them or ask for help. And most of us, most of us suffer what I would call selective entropy. 
That is, we're super busy with lots of stuff because we haven't adequately discerned what God is and is not asking us to do. So we're so busy in lots of other things, we neglect some stuff that might be really important, like friends and family and faith. So, so sometimes God gives us inciting incidents to get us moving, a.k.a. kicking the pants, and to give us kind of the spiritual startup capital we need for a, a bigger life. And that's what's going on in today's passage. We've been marching through the book of Exodus. Pharaoh is steadfastly refusing to let the Israelites go free from slavery. So to get them going and change Pharaoh's mind, God sends 10 plagues to convince him, which consist of locusts and gnats and flies and boils and dead cows and all kinds of stuff. And after 10 of them, Pharaoh finally says to Moses, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. In Hebrew, it's literally you there, get out. The 10 plagues are the inciting incident God uses to get the break the stalemate, not just with Pharaoh, but with the Israelites as well, because you see, they're resisting getting free too. They're dragging their feet. They might say, well, how can they so complacently settle in their bondage, in their slavery? Well, how can we, how can you, how can I settle in our complacency and bondage? Say things like, oh, I know, I know God says there's a way to have a really great marriage, and yeah, you know, Bell Press even provides things to help with that, but who has time for that, man? The kids have soccer practice. Or, yeah, I've heard some really amazing stories of folks who get involved in God's rescue mission to help others, and they have adventures, and they make good friends, and all kinds of great stuff happens, but, man, I am tired. That's Pharaoh, the Israelites, so God gets them moving. Now, this passage raises a big question. How can a loving God send ten plagues, the last of which is the death of the firstborn, if he's so loving? How can he do that? And this is a tough passage for sure. And, and I actually thought about skipping it and not preaching on it or, or preaching it next week when it's Memorial Day and some of you will be gone, right? But, but that sort of seemed cowardly. So here it is. It's nixed up. So here we go. Ultimately, I actually think this is a good news passage about a God who fights to set us free. But let me just take a minute digression on this, a couple minutes on this. Now, as mo- first, I got to point out, as many commentators point out, Um, all of these, except the last plague, are just natural phenomenon. So, for instance, the the first plague is the Nile turns to blood. That could have been a flood that loosened the red clay and polluted the Nile. In fact, we even have Egyptian writings from this same time that said at one point the Nile was turned to blood red and was undrinkable, confirming this biblical account. Then that pollution would have caused the frogs to leave the river. That's the plague of frogs. And then they die, and that would attract the gnats and the flies and all those plagues. And, and then the livestock would have you know, got the disease and died. Locust swarms, that still happens today. Like, on and on and on, right? You can explain all these naturally. And yes, that's true, but the deeper point here is that God is using these things to get the freedom train rolling. And let's remember... In case you start to feel sorry, too sorry for the Egyptians, let's remember this is an oppressive regime that has held the Israelites in brutal slavery for 400 years. Oh, 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 and don't forget the genocide, right? In the last plague, the firstborn of Egypt die. But remember, God, uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, back in chapter 2, commanded that all, not just the firstborn, but all the Hebrew boys be drowned in the Nile. And it wasn't just Pharaoh that did that. No, 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 no. Most of Egyptian society was complicit in this and reaping the rewards from their slave labor. Plus, most of these plagues are going the category of nuisance. They're not life-threatening. Gnats, frogs, flies, nuisance. And each time, Pharaoh is warned. God gives him 10 chances. And had they repented at first, nobody would have been hurt. 
And even in these plagues, God provides mercy even for the Egyptians. So, for instance, before the plague of hail, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, bring your livestock and everything you have to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal, protecting them. Later, it says that not all the crops were killed by the hail, so he left them still with a food source, mercy, even in the midst of the plagues. The question the Israelites might have had is not why is, so God, God, why is God so harsh. The question they might have had is why is he, is he so gracious and patient with such evil people? See, part of the reason we read this and go, ooh, how can God be so harsh is because we sit here in luxury and we are not oppressed. If you are a slave, if you are oppressed, this looks very different. This looks like liberation and freedom. Two of the main arguments against God actually contradict each other. How can God let evil go on and on? How can God judge? Right? They, they contradict each other. Well, you might say, well, that's fine, but did, why, why, why did he have to kill the firstborn? And ultimately, I cannot make the discomfort of that go away. But you know what? From God's point of view, death maybe isn't the worst thing in the world. And maybe for those folks who were innocent, they went straight to be with God anyway. And in this story, God provides a way out. If you know the story, he tells them to slaughter a lamb, put the blood on the door as a sign that they trusted God, and then God would pass over their house and not take the firstborn. It's called Passover. The Jews still celebrate it today. And we know from earlier chapters that the Egyptians had started to do what Mo some Egyptians had started to do what Moses told them to do. Plus, we know later that Egyptians actually went with the Israelites when they left Egypt. So it is a reasonable speculation that some of those same Egyptians put blood on their door and they were spared as well. But the point in all of this is not that God sends natural disasters to punish people. That's not the point. He sends these reluctantly. The point is that ultimately, he is the God who rescues and liberates. And because he loves us, he is a warrior who will fight to set us free. And he does that in two ways that we see in this text. And the first is this, God delivers us from the idols that keep us stuck. And by idol, I don't mean statue we bow down to. I mean those things we fixate on that anesthetize us. Comfort, wealth, prestige, success, all of that stuff, power. They keep us, they hold us down sometimes. A couple years ago, I had one of those dreams that you just kind of never forget. And, and in this dream, I was leading a men's Bible study. And in my men's Bible study, in my dream, we decided that we were too tame as middle-class Christians, and we wanted to be more bold like people in the Bible. So we decided to conquer Italy. I don't know why. I mean, it's a dream, right? So nothing makes a ton of sense. So we decided that we would conquer Italy. So then, right after we decided that, the first thing we did was we formed a committee to study the option. <laughs> Obviously a Presbyterian dream, right? I have been hanging around Presbyterian churches too long, right? So then we did the study, and we concluded, actually, it'd be more prudent to just go to an Italian restaurant and eat spaghetti. Okay, I have no idea what that dream means. And you know, that's what we did. We went, the rest of the dream was eating spaghetti. And then we took some prayer requests, you know. I have no idea what that dream means, but I think it means something like this. Sometimes Jesus offers freedom, adventure, great relationships, bigger life, but our idols, comfort, prestige, wealth, status, they hold us back. So what idols are, are, are you holding on to that are holding you down, keeping you in some kind of bondage? What are those idols for you? Because everyone's got one. And God goes after those things like a mother bear protecting her cubs because he loves us. And that's what the plagues are ultimately about. See, God says this, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. See, the contest is not between God and Pharaoh. It's between God and the false gods of Egypt. 
in order to get Israel out of its complacency, right? See, Israel, I can set you free. But also, he's after Pharaoh's heart as well. And I'll get to that in a minute, the hard heart thing. But he's after Pharaoh's heart as well, trying to convince Pharaoh, these idols are not going to set you free. And you see that everywhere in the plague. So, for instance, the Egyptians had several gods associated with the Nile. And Nile was the source of trade, agriculture, in other words, the source of all their wealth and status and comfort as a nation. And one of the Nile gods was Osiris, and the Nile was thought to be his blood. So when God turns the Nile to blood, it's God saying, I'm God, not Osiris. It's not your wealth, it's not your comfort, it's not your status, it's not your prestige. Those things can't set you free, only I can. Look, Osiris can't even control his own blood. It's also sort of poetic justice because Pharaoh had used the Nile as a weapon against the Hebrew boys, and now that Nile is coming back as a weapon against him. The plague of frogs is aimed at an Egyptian goddess of fertility named Hecate, who was depicted as a frog. And it's in some ways almost comic. God says, okay, you worship fertility, I'll give you fertility. And then this is what it says. The frogs will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, gross, and into your ovens and kneading troughs, like, so there you are making pizza dough, and suddenly you've got frog pizza, right? They'll come up on you and your people and all your officials. Them some fertile frogs, man. Like, that's just a lot of frogs. And then they all die. And it says they were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. If you wanted a metaphor, there it is. Our false gods bring death, and they reek. Almost every plague takes aim at a particular Egyptian god. The darkness is the, you know, takes aim at their sun god. I mean, sun, Nile, source of their wealth and all of that. And God is saying, they aren't God. They can't free you. Only I can. Please turn to me. Please ask for my power. Please do what I ask you to do because I will set you free. That's why God says over and over, I'm doing this so you will know by experience, not theology, experience that I am God. I am God. Not your government, not your safety, not your comfort, not your job, not your wealth, not your prestige. Those things aren't God. Those things can oppress you. Those things can become bondage to you. They can be good things, but they can hold you down from the bigger life I am trying to give you, and I am the God who will fight to set you free. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you may say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't the reason Pharaoh refused to let them go is because God hardened his heart? And how's that? I mean, that's not fair, you know, harden his heart and then clobber him for his hard heart. It's not quite that way. Take a look at the screen. In some places in this story, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It does say that. In other places, though, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then in others, it says his heart was hardened. In other words, it's some kind of mixture here, right? It's not so much God that hardened his heart, but it was in Pharaoh's nature to get a hard heart when he got in contact with the living God. Think of it this way. The same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. In both cases, you could say it's the sun that's doing it, but really it's the difference in the nature of the thing exposed to the sun. When God starts to pry our hands off of our idols, some people's hearts get hard and they resist. Others cooperate, and most of us are both at the same time, right? And we resist. Don't take my idol. I like my idol. That's my idol. Give it back to me. Right? And, or, or we do what Pharaoh does here. We kind of compromise with what God's asking. You know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh says this, Okay, Moses, you can go, but have only the men go and worship the Lord, as though that were a solution. Right? And basically, that's, he's compartmentalizing God. I'll obey you this much, but no more, God. And we do the same thing with our lives. Right? God, here's my Sunday life, but my work life and my money and my sex life, those are mine. Hands off that. That's my stuff. Leave it alone. 
or we convince ourselves that what we want to do is what God also wants us to do. Writer Ken Davis talks about a time when he was driving and saw a bakery, and he said, okay, Lord, if there's a parking spot in front of that bakery, I'll know it's okay for me to stop and get a donut. And he said, sure enough, my fifth time around the block, there was a parking spot. <laughs> but God loves us so much, he will keep coming after all of those false gods to set us free. And then the first thing he'll do, the first way he'll do that is first he'll touch our, our mind. He'll try to convince us. If that doesn't work, then he'll touch our conscience. And then if all else fails, reluctantly, he'll touch our circumstances to set us free. But most of the time, he doesn't have to do that either. He just lets us experience natural consequences of our acts. Right? Just like these plagues were naturally occurring, if anything else is more important to us than God, there'll be some natural consequences. If we make work more important to us than God, which I sometimes do, well, then we're going to have some consequences. There'll be emotional disintegration. We'll be stressed out. Family disintegration. There'll, 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 there'll be physical disintegration. It'll take an effect on our health. If we don't give our resources to help those in need, there'll be relational disintegration and social disintegration. If we follow the false gods of our culture, it always leads to a smaller life. It's like a husband sitting on a couch and his wife says, you know, why don't you go outside and play with our son and, you know, build a great relationship, be his hero, all that sort of thing, memories and all that. And husband goes, I'm too tired. You know, long week at work, I'm too tired. Right? But then the phone rings and someone asks him to go golfing and a miracle occurs. Right? Suddenly there's all this new life and resurrection and, you know, golfing is fine. There's nothing wrong with golfing. Golfing's fine if that's your particular psychosis. But, but my point is the things we cling to anesthetize us. And the good news in the bad news of this passage is that God loves you so much, he will fight to set you free and give you a swift kick where the sun don't shine if that's what you need. I have a friend I'll call Dan, who at one point in his life drank way too much, way too much into the party scene for his own good. And he knew Jesus had more for him, but he was kind of stuck. His prayer basically was, you know, Lord, transform me, but not yet kind of a thing. And one night he drank too much, was trying to impress everyone, be the life of the party, ended up walking through a glass door, cut himself so badly, he ended up in the hospital for a day. And when he was there, a friend came to visit him. And as they were talking, the friend said, well, at least this answers that prayer you prayed, you know, last week in Bible study. And my friend said, Dan said, what prayer? What did I pray for? And his friend said, humility. Like, remember, you prayed for humility? And that became kind of a turning point in Dan's life. Dan started doing things that were actually more fun than getting drunk and more fulfilling, like mentoring younger men and hearing them say, you've changed my life. Instead of drinking, he'd do things like rock climbing, river rafting, surfing, that sort of thing, often with really good friends. Now he's a leader of a large nonprofit, doing really good work, great marriage, right? That was an inciting incident that God used to get him out of bondage, out of holding on to his idols, and into a bigger life. Now, it doesn't always have to be facing negative consequences that gets us moving. Sometimes it's a positive thing. Opportunity for a new job, and we take it. An opening in a conversation to say, I'm sorry, and you take it and heal a relationship. An invitation to get involved in something that will change lives of others. But whatever it is, God will fight to get you free, to get you to his bigger promised land. And then he'll do one last thing. One last thing he'll do as well, and that is he will plunder our sin for gold. And here's what I mean by that. As the Israelites are leaving, I think this is one of the most profound things in the Bible. Israelites are leaving. The text says this. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. They'd asked for silver and gold. 
So the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. Now, if you understand that throughout the Bible, Egypt is a metaphor for bondage and sin, what this is saying is God doesn't just get us moving out of bondage. He'll plunder it for gold. He brings good out of it and helps us get started in a new life. Just like he did for my friend Dan. That was sin. Walked through the glass door, right? But God plundered that sin for gold, used it to change his life. And the ultimate example of this, of course, is the cross. It was the sin of the Romans and the religious leaders and our sin that put Jesus there, but God plundered that sin, used it to purchase our forgiveness and set us free from that particular Egypt. And the Passover, right, when they slaughter the lamb and put the blood on the door and God passes over their house, all of that clearly foreshadows Jesus, right? Jesus repeatedly is called the Lamb of God. Just as the lamb's blood saved the Israelites from death, Jesus' blood saves us from sin and death will rise again with him. Jesus is even crucified on Passover. Passover lambs were slaughtered at 3 p.m. Jesus dies at 3 p.m. This is not English major hard, okay? You don't need a PhD. It's really clear, foreshadowing. And it wasn't, for these people, it wasn't their Jewishness that saved them or whether they were good people or bad people. What saved them was the blood of the lamb and that alone. Trusting God to set them free, not their prestige, not their wealth, not their culture, not all of their false gods. This is their independence day, but their independence came from dependence on God. So what is it that you know you need to do to be a little more who God made you to be? Let this sermon be your inciting incident. To say, I'm sorry, or let's try again, or we can heal this marriage, or to make that phone call, or say no to some of the frantic striving we all do to appease the idols of our culture, and say yes to some of the adventures God invites us into, or to a classmate, or a coworker, or a neighbor who just needs to know that they are loved. Spend some time this week asking God to show you what that is, and then, if you have the guts, pray, Lord, if I'm not moving on this thing, well, get me off the dime. Get me moving. Close with a story I just heard about an 87-year-old woman named Lois. And at 15, Lois was inspired by a sermon. It, it happens sometimes. And, and she told God that she would go overseas to help people in poverty in Jesus' name. But life went on. She got married, raised a family, dealt with her alcoholic husband, who eventually became a Christian and got sober, had a great life. And there was meaningful work in all of that. All of that was really good work. And God did really good things in all of that. But when her husband died, it was kind of an inciting incident. She started to feel that nudge to go on the mission field again. Hadn't thought about it in decades, but God had not forgotten. And she didn't want to do it. She had all kinds of reasons. No, Lord, I'm too old. I'm too tired. I've done my part. Uh-uh, not going to do it. But everywhere she went, you know, it was like missionaries everywhere. You'd be in church and it was a missionary. She'd be on the plane, there'd be a missionary. Just constantly these nudges, these nudges. That was 10 years ago. Now, at 87, Lois has become kind of the unlikely builder of an orphanage in the Philippines that is rescuing 35 kids from begging on the streets, from parental abuse, all kinds of things. She calls it Lola because that means grandmother in the native language. She calls all of them their, her, her kids, and each of their stories is heartbreaking, but each of them is getting free. But so is Lois because she doesn't feel 87 years old. And she knows, not in her head, but by experience, that God is powerful. Because see, she decided to build that orphanage without government assistance, because what the government pays for, it might want to control. And her denomination, I'm not sure, it wasn't Presbyterian, but whatever it was, denomination wouldn't give her any money because they said she was too old. But that didn't stop her. 
All the money comes from individual donations, word of mouth, and a ton and a ton of prayer. Just praying that God brings it in. And when she was asked if that made her nervous, she said, sometimes. But I've also seen a lot of evidence that I serve a mighty God. And I know I'm not talented enough to do any of this, but God does it through me, and my responsibility is just to do what he tells me to do. She's getting free. 35 kids are getting free. She's seen God in a mighty way, and she feels very, very young. Now, it took some inciting incidents to get her there, right? But, but she, when those doors opened, she walked through them. So here's my question. Is an 87-year-old great-grandmother more energetic, more brave, more visionary than you? Yeah, pretty much me too. But <laughs> doesn't have to be. Right? doesn't have to be that way because, you see, Jesus will nudge, cajole, call us up, call us out to a bigger life. He will fight to make you free. So where is he nudging you to take a step out of Egypt and toward his promised land? And how could you start that step today? So Jesus, we pray, do what it takes. Lord, do what it takes to move us forward into that promised land you're leading us to. Lord, when we are stuck, we ask that you would move us along into the freedom and the bigger life that you want to give us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.